0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network Jewish Studies channel. I am your host, Drora Arusi, Senior Director of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. At the American Sephardi Federation, we try to see beyond the Ashkenazi world and glimpse into the greater Jewish mosaic. Today we're really delighted to speak with Professor Alan Verskin, an Associate Professor of History an Associate Professor of History at the University of Rhode Island. He has held fellowships at Columbia University and the University of Pennsylvania. His academic work ranges in topic from medieval Spain to 19th century Yemen, and from Islamic law to Jewish philosophy. He is an avid translator of Arabic, Judeo-Arabic, and Hebrew. Today, we will be speaking about his book, A Vision of Yemen, The Travels of a European Orientalist and His Native Guide a translation of Chaim Habshush's travelogue, published by Stanford University Press in 2018. Welcome, Alan, and thank you for joining us here today. I kind of gave a bit of a background about you, but if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and your areas of research um, and tell us even how you got into this topic in general.
0: Great, thank you, and thank you for having me. Uh, So uh, my whole, journey into academia began when I was in college, and I took a course on Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed. And I discovered this remarkable thing that perhaps I should have known before, that Maimonides' Guide was written in Arabic. And I really wanted to understand Maimonides' Guide, and I realized that I had to read it in the original Arabic. So I began studying Arabic the next year and continuing my studies of the Guide. And then I realized something else, that in order to understand Maimonides properly, I had to understand the Islamic context in which he wrote. He was always quoting Islamic philosophers, Islamic jurists, and I wanted to understand what what they meant to him and how he was using those kinds of sources. Uh, So I started studying about Islam and about Islamic history, and that eventually led to me doing a PhD at Princeton in Islamic law. Now, while I was uh, at Princeton, I used to study in this little room called the Princeton Geniza Lab. And at the time, it was just a converted janitor's closet, but that closet had all of Goytain's old books in it. And when I was procrastinating, I they used
1: said, to- said let's just say who yes. Goytain. We know who Goytain was. Let's make sure everybody knows. Oh, so,
0: Shlomo Dov Goytain was uh, probably the greatest scholar of the Cairo Geniza, and he wrote this massive five-volume work called um, uh, Mediterranean Society, which described the daily lives of of Jews uh, in, in in the medieval period in Egypt. And uh, when he died, most of his papers were, went to Israel, but the ones that they had copies of stayed back in Princeton. Um, so I got to read I I got I got to read his own copies of his of his own books. And one of those books was A Vision of Yemen, Chaim Hapshush's A Vision of Yemen that Goytine had first edited back in the 1930s. And uh, again, I said I was procrastinating. So I started I started reading it and I couldn't put it down. It was this really compelling adventure story uh, told by the Yemeni Jewish grandfather I never had. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I. Pretty much as soon as I read it, I realized I I had to translate it and make it available to to a broader to a broader audience. And that's how I got my whole start in Yemeni, Yemeni Jewish studies.
1: And it's interesting that two of time's main areas of research, if you want to call it that, were the Geniza and the Yemenite Jews. Yes. And they put them together in this Geniza closet, I guess. I don't that's, know. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So yeah, Goitan wrote quite a bit about Yemenite Jews as well. Um, So let's go to the book itself or the the travels itself. I'm going to call them the two main characters, even though it's not a novel. And Mm -hmm. we have Yosef Halevi, a a spartified Ashkenazi. And yes, I'm making up terms now. And the author Mm -hmm. Chaim Hatshush, a Yemenite Jew of Sanaa. Can you give us a little bit of an introduction to who they were?
0: Sure. Uh, so I'll begin with I'll begin with Chaim Chabshush. uh He comes from this prominent Yemenite Jewish family uh, that's from the capital uh, of Yemen, Sana'a. And uh, when he meets Halevi, he's a young man of perhaps thirty years uh, thirty years of age, and he's a coppersmith. But he does something interesting while he's a coppersmith. He's really in- interested in these ancient inscriptions that you can find all over Yemen. And he actually incorporates them into into his work. This is before he met uh, Joseph Halevi. Uh, And at this point in Chaim Chabshush's life, he believes that these ancient inscriptions have magical properties. He liked uh, turning them into amulets and and things like that. But then he meets this European Jew, Joseph Halevi. And Halevi tells Hapshush a story that's not really true. He says to Habshush that he is an emissary from the Jewish community in Jerusalem and he's in Yemen to collect alms. Um, and um, Hapshush pretty soon figures out that, Habsh- that Halevi is more interested in these inscriptions than in collecting alms from, from, from Yemenite Jews. So he develops a trick. He lends Halevi a book but as a bookmark, he puts in some of his transcriptions of these ancient, uh, ancient inscriptions. And Halavi sees this, it starts a whole conversation and eventually Habshush gets hired as uh, Joseph Hallevi's native 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 guide. Um, and they go around Yemen for about a year uh, transcribing. All of these ancient inscriptions from wherever they can find them on buildings, on monuments, and so on, and 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 so forth. But over the course of this year, they begin as friends, and they have uh, a kind of a falling out. Uh, and why is this? Well, from Chabshusha's perspective, uh, he had really wanted Halevi to step in and help uh, and and tell Europeans of the situation in Yemen. Uh, it was a very difficult century in Yemen. There were civil wars, there were plagues, there were failed crops, there were famines. And he wanted uh, Halevi to go to Europe and, and, and encourage Europeans to give aid to Yemenis, both Jewish and Muslims. But it was fairly clear that Halevi was not interested in doing that. He was just interested in his archaeological archaeological work. Um, so Habshush goes home, Halevi goes home, and they never see each other ever, ever again. But then, 20 years later, another Jewish Orientalist, this one from Austria, a man named Edvard Glaser, comes to, comes to Yemen. And Habshush tells him that uh, 20 years earlier, he guided uh, Halevi around Yemen. And Glaser says, "Well, now that's that's really interesting because Halevi brought back all of these inscriptions, but we there are a lot of things we don't know about his about his trip." And I should add that Gloser really did not like Halevi. There was some kind of scholarly ri- rivalry going on, so it's very possible that Gloser was asking Habshush this question to dig up some dirt on uh, on his academic rival uh, Joseph Joseph Halevi. And Gloser says to Habshush, "I'll commission you to write an account." of what it was like to work for this this Orientalist. Please tell us more about about your journey with him. So um, Khabshush says yes, but he doesn't give Glaser exactly what he asked for. Uh, He tells the story of his relationship with Halebi, but Habshush is also an activist. He wants to engage Europeans in Yemen. He wants to tell uh, Europeans about what life in Yemen is really like for both Muslims and for and for Jews. So he uses this kind of adventure story to give this much broader picture of of daily life in 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 in, in Yemen. Um, so that's what we that the main things that we know about Khabshush from this account that he writes. We do know a little bit more about Khabshush from another source. And this is a source that was written in Hebrew and has never been translated into English, but probably should be. Chabshush's uh, great nephew Yechiel Chabshush self-published probably about twenty-five books on the Jews of Yemen. Uh, many of them are truly excellent, and some of them are about Chabshush family history. Um, and he talks about Chaim Chabshush, his, uh, his 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 great uncle, and. Um, there he's portrayed much the way he's portrayed in his own a vision of, in Chaim vision of Yemen as this really curious, really resourceful person who's not afraid to push boundaries. So uh, there's stories of Khabshush sitting in synagogue, feeling bored and sneaking in books of Islamic history to read. <laughs> um, there are stories of Khabshush uh, debunking local uh, legends about ghosts. He goes hunting for gold. He solves a murder. Uh, he's, he's constantly involved in all of uh, in, in all of these activities. In, in addition to being um, a successful businessman, uh, so that's another another source of information that that we have about Chabshush that I use a little bit. So that's Chabshush. Um, now for uh, Joseph jo, Joseph Halevi. Um, Halevi is an incredibly interesting personality as well. Um he self-trained himself in academic linguistics, and eventually he became a full professor at uh, the Ecole Pratique des Autitudes, the, the best institution of best university really at the time in France, without having a single university degree, not a BA, not a PhD, and eventually he becomes this this full professor there. Uh, and Halevi is also very impressive to all of the different Jewish communities uh, that, that that he that he meets. He goes trapped before he becomes an academic. He's a teacher in a variety of, of Jewish Jewish schools. In one community, he's excommunicated for interfering with the local exorcism, but the general picture is that uh, people appreciate him for his, for his learning. Uh, he knew Halakha well. He seems to have been a rabbi. Uh, and, uh, he had an almost photographic memory and he could learn languages really quickly. He could go to, pl- go to a place and within a few months he could, he could preach, um, in the, in the language, in the language of the place, really a phenomenal, a phenomenal mind. And, um, before he went to Yemen, he traveled to Ethiopia and, um, didn't go with an imperial army. How did he go? He went on his own, and he disguised himself as a rhinoceros trader. Uh, so you get the sense of Halevi as, as, an, as an adventurer, an individual adventurer. Um, and he goes to Ethiopia, and he meets Ethiopian Jews, and uh, he learns about them, and he deeply cares about them and again we're talking about a very difficult period in Ethiopian history the civil war the british army has come in their famines Can you and give he give a little
1: won- bit of the date just so that i don't 18-
0: think in the early 1860s yeah he he goes he go he go he goes there so there uh well, the mid 1860s he's there so it's a difficult period and he wants to uh, he wants to deliver uh, deliver aid to these jews because they are um they are suffering and uh, he promises the Jews this aid. He thinks it's going to be delivered. He goes back to France. He tries to make the case to the Alliance Israélite Universelle, this important French Jewish organization, and uh, they don't accept his claims. They don't believe that Ethiopian Jews are Jewish. Um, and he fights, and he loses his friends, and he damages his career. But he can't get that aid that he's that he's promised. <laughs> And it's at this really low point in his career that uh, he's invited by the French Academy to make this trip to Yemen. Uh, Why do they want him? Uh, Because he's an adventurer and bizarrely because he is a rabbinic sage, as they as they put it. Um, Yemen is a very difficult country to travel in. It's even difficult for Muslims to move in this period from one area of Yemen to another area of Yemen. Because so much of one's safety depends on one's tribal connections. And if one moves into the area of a different tribe, one loses all those connections and one potentially endangers one's life. But Jews are in a little bit of a different position that they don't play a part in these tribal turf wars. Um, they're not part of this tribal game, as it, as it were, of, of honor. And so... As a Jew, one can travel from one air tribal area to another tribal area with relative impunity. And why would the Jews grant Halevi hospitality? Well, the French Academy has another great idea and this is Ernest Renault's idea. He's the major figure in French, in French letters at that point. He says, look, there's a history of the Jerusalem Jewish community sending out emissaries, even to Yemen. They've been there over the centuries, they recognize Um, uh, uh, rabbinical emissaries from Jerusalem as a as a particular type. And uh, they will grant hospitality to those emissaries. So he tells Halevi to go as one of those as one of those emissaries. And indeed, more or less, it's a very dangerous trip, but it does work Uh, on the strength of this claim, this false claim, uh, Halevi gets the hospitality of all the Jewish communities that he that in Yemen that he meets
1: it's interesting that he gets it as collecting alms rather than
0: yeah.
1: somebody who was coming to help them
0: um, so there's a strange there's a strange um thing about those 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 emissaries uh, they go to some places and they raise a lot of uh a lot of money um and there's a wonderful book by Matthias Lehman on on these on these emissaries over over the centuries but the other but there's not much money to be had in yemen right when they send uh I mean there is in the port cities and that, but when they're going into central Yemen, these are much poorer communities. And they're going there more uh as uh as as a symbol of, of Jewish unity to allow to to preach, to participate. It's more it's more like a like a Kiruv mission uh in many ways, um than than an alms collecting, collecting, collecting mission. Right. And
1: we see Throughout the ages, Jews were always coming in and trying to change the Yemenite uh, Jews to be more like them. And mm-hmm. always this clash of cultures, but that's for a different book. Um, yes. Let's, uh, I want to skip ahead since you mentioned it for a moment. Um, <laughs> let it, Let you talked about how difficult the travel was and the different circumstances and the geography and the difference between the Jews in the port city and the Jews in the villages. Can you Mm -hmm. expand? I mean, in the book, he talks about there could be one family in a village. Um, And so can you just talk a little bit about the geography of the region?
0: Yes. Although I will just pick up on one thing that you said before to change the Jews. And one thing that Halevi does not do when he goes to Yemen is to change the Jews. Um, And it's partly because he... He doesn't want to make any promises that he can't make good on. He's burned by his experience in, in, in Ethiopia. And he's not there on behalf of any Jewish organization. He's just there on behalf of the French Academy. So we have Yemenite Jews coming to him sometimes asking him to be, uh, you know, a posek, to, 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 to decide a particular uh, position or, or or judge in a particular position. And he refuses, often to the frustration of all all of the people, all, all of the people around him. So he does try to stay out of changing um, Yemeni Jews at that point. Habshush is annoyed. He wants him to participate. <laughs> but um, uh, Halevi doesn't want to do that, at least in, in Yemen. Now, whether he has an effect anyway, uh it's quite possible. But uh but that's something you know you've you've seen in the you've seen in the book. In terms of the geography of the Jews of Yemen, it's it's actually pretty interesting. Uh I hate giving numbers because we really don't have population surveys or or anything like that. But we're looking at probably between 60 and 80,000 Jews in Yemen in the in in the 19th century and uh, the the late 19th century in the late 19th century. Yeah. And the biggest single population of those Jews is in the capital in in (laughs) Sana'a. Uh, and it's estimated that about a fifth of Sanaa is is Jewish. So that's um, it's still maybe only ten or fifteen thousand Jews, but it's uh, but it's a substantial portion of the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for the rest of the Jews, uh, they are all over a variety of parts of Yemen. I think that the biggest concentration is in northwestern Yemen, but they're not in any individual town. There are three or four Jewish families to, 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 a, to a village. Um, and what they're what and and this is great for Halevi because as he travels, he can travel from Jewish Jewish home to, to, to Jewish home. There are also Jews in port cities, in in Aden, for example, the port city that the British have uh, have been in control of since 1839. And that's got a larger Jewish population of, of merchant traders. Uh, much wealthier than many of the other other, and
1: also much more of a mixed community. It's not pure mm. Yemenites there. It
0: was from the region. Yeah. Uh, there's a Sephardic synagogue in Habshush's own time, right? Uh, where um, there are Yemeni Jews who who, who pray there. but uh, but there are also a lot of foreign foreign merchants in that. So it's it's um, you get in the port areas, there's a lot more diversity. There's also a lot more imperial activity that's going that's going on. Uh, once you get into the areas of central Yemen that Halevi and Habshush travel to, uh, that is much more isolated.
1: Yeah. And, and much more of a pure community uh, Yes, from the from their ancient roots. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to go back. I said it's going back and forth a little bit, but I want to go back to Yosef Alevi because one of the things I found fascinating about him is that he goes through those divides of the Ashkenazi and the sparadi and the Ethiopian and the Yemenite. And whether or not he treats them exactly with respect, he still treats them as part of his... The Jewish community and the Jewish people, and it's almost—I think today we would call it some kind of a colorblindness campaign—that he was on to make mm-hmm. sure that uh, we all accepted each other. And obviously, it didn't work with the Ethiopian Jews. Um, but can you talk about that a little bit?
0: So I'll, I'll share a little bit of my of my theory, because um, uh, we don't really know why why he did the things that 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 that, that he did. I think the most important thing to understand about Halevi is that he is a perpetual contrarian, and that if there's a debate, he will always enter it on the losing side or the unpopular, unpopular side. And uh, what's the biggest debate that's going on in the European Academy at the time? It's it's all of these debates around racial science that's 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 emerging, and that really. It begins as a linguistic debate, it ends up as a biological debate, and and we all know the terrible outcome in the 20th century of all of these debates that start in the 19th century. Um, but Alevi is very suspicious of this, of, of, of race as being this kind of of determining, determining factor. And um, in terms of in terms of its implications for him, uh, he is much more in favor of identifying people based on their religion, based on their ideologies, rather than based on their languages or their ethnicity and so on and and, and, and so forth. So um, whereas there's the, maybe, maybe I'll step back a bit that we're talking about Christian anti-Judaism at this point uh, to for a Christian to say um, that uh, to criticize Jews because of their religion, that's passé. In the, in, the, in, in the European Academy, but to criticize a Jew because of their Semitism is not. Um, and uh, Halevi senses the danger of this, and uh, he doesn't want a Judaism that is shaped along along those lines. So where at a time when everyone is saying uh, what I'm like is good and what the other is like is bad, Halevi always takes on the part of the other. So when he's in the Ottoman Empire, uh, he is the Ashkenazi. He is known as the Monsieur before he even uh, moves to France. When he's in France, despite the fact that he has blonde hair and blue eyes and fluently speaks Hungarian, he affects uh, what he thinks are Eastern mannerisms. And he's widely criticized for for being an Oriental, you know, in this in this in this uh, pejorative uh, sense. Uh, So he always wants to be uh, the odd one, the odd one out. And uh, he wants a Jewish community that includes those others, Now, whether it's it's uh, it's being a Sephardi in an Ashkenazi context or an Ashkenazi in a Sephardic context or an Ethiopian in Paris. He wants a Judaism that that includes all of those uh, all of those possibilities. And I think that that's that's very exciting, especially especially now to have a person in the 19th century who thought who thought that way. Um, And one of the things that that drew me to to Halevi and his and his and his writings.
1: Oh, me as well. I have to tell you, that's one of the things I definitely could relate to as well. And now you're talking about the cultures and how he was the other wherever he could be. Mm-hmm. Um, here in his travels, there's there are definitely clashes of cultures because you're talking about the Tsanani Jew who yeah. uh, the Habshush, who is very different from the village Jew, who's very different from the European Jew, whether he considers himself an, um, from the Ottoman Empire or for, a, but he's still a more a European Jew, and you have these classes of clashes of culture. Um, and you, you kind of highlight the fact that when they come to this young girl from Najan, not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, and why don't you tell us the story instead of me getting into it a little bit and talk about uh I just think to me, this is the real clashes of culture and yet coming to some kind of Maybe not the best resolution, but a resolution. Yes,
0: so it's 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 a phenomenal story, and uh, what happens is that Habshush and Halevi end up as guests in the house um, of this Jewish family in Najran. And uh, to give you an idea of where Najran is, it's now in modern day Saudi Arabia. So uh, we don't think of Jews as being there, but, but, but this is on the border between uh, Yemen and Saudi, and Saudi Arabia now. And that's where, that's where they are. And uh, Habshush immediately realizes that something is the matter with this family that he's, he's, he's visited. There's an elderly father. There's an elderly mother. There's a young girl. There are a bunch of other, 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 other siblings. And he can tell that they're sad and that something is bothering them. And so he convinces them to open up to him. And in order to do this, um, he engages in a certain amount of of, of of trickery. And they tell him that their daughter has fallen pregnant out of wedlock. And uh, because the parents are too old to kill her themselves, they're waiting for the relatives to come and do what's effectively an honor an honor killing. And Hamshush is... Absolutely horrified by this, he has never heard of a Jewish honor killing, uh, because he's in the capital of Yemen. He's in he's in he's in Sana. It's not part of his of his culture at all. Um, so he wants to solve the 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 this, the, the, the problem, and so he his solution is to uh, perform an abortion for this for this for this young girl and solve the situation by allowing the family to hush up this, this this pregnancy. And the family agrees and there's much rejoicing and Habshush notes that he was able to perform this abortion because it was occasionally done in Jewish families in Sana'a. There was nothing wrong with this, with this, uh, this procedure. Uh, Halevi, who does not understand the dialect of this family in Najran at all, then asks Habshush to fill him in on what's happened. And like Hapshush, Halevi is horrified by the idea of this of this honor killing, and um, he breaks his usual mo and goes to the family and says they're disgusting for wanting to kill their pregnant their 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 pregnant daughter. Uh, because the child is not a bastard, not a mamzer in Jewish law, and indeed that's the halachic position, because she's not married, so the child does not have the status of of of, of a mamzer. And he says that they can't. He his response is getting angry at the family and saying that he's going to report them to the Jews of the world uh, for engaging in this barbaric practice of honor killing. But Halevi also won't allow or doesn't want Habshush to um, perform this abortion. Why? Because he says that abortion is murder. And
1: um, these timely issues. I just have to point that out. (laughs) Um,
0: But with some differences, right? That this was not Halevi's position as a religious Jew. It was likely a reflection of the liberal positions uh, in France, where liberal people, uh, objected to abortion for 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 a variety of reasons. It wasn't a reflection of the Catholic uh, position. Um, so a, a lot of interesting clashes of of yes. <laughs> culture going on there. Um, and um, Habshush had never heard of abortion being defined as as murder. He's uh, shocked. He initially thinks that Halevi is just insane for proposing uh, proposing it as 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 murder. But eventually, he comes to uh, to accept Halevi's position. And so um, Habshush still wants to help out. And so he offers another solution. And that solution is to marry the girl and raise the child as his own. And uh, initially, the woman's family, the woman's mother is very um, uh, reluctant to accept this kind of solution. He thinks that uh, Habshush is going to marry her and then leave her alone, far away from her family. Uh, which for them is a fate literally worse than death—that she would be taken away and left alone, left alone somewhere. But Habshush convinces her of uh, his good his good intentions, and uh, and the family rejoice and they accept that this this marriage is now is now is now going to happen. And then, uh, Halevi again says to Habshush, "What's happened? Why is everyone why is everyone rejoicing at this at this point?" And um, Habshush explains and Halevi blows up in a fury and he says I know you you Yemeni Jews uh, have polygamy but it's an evil practice and you Hapshush have a son a young son and a wife back in Sana'a and what is she going to say to you contracting this marriage without her knowledge she's going to divorce you and you're not going to be able to see your kid and uh, uh, it's going to create misery for everyone. And moreover, they're all going to blame me because I took you on this on the on on this trip, and it brought you all this kinds of this this this, this trouble. And uh, you know, Halevi makes some serious points. What about Hapshush's first wife? Doesn't she get a say in this in this in this second marriage? And Hapshush accepts his logic again. And then we have the really uncomfortable resolution to the story where they leave early in the morning and they never return and we don't know what happens to uh to this to this woman uh so that's the story (laughs) um the there are a number of interesting points that um that that come out that um there's a three-way clash of of cultures that's 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 going that's going on here um you have this Najrani Jewish family that believes that um honor killing is sometimes appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh necessary. We have necessary even, yeah. And we have this Jew from Sana'a, the Sanani Jew, and we have this uh Jew from Europe uh who who think it's it's evil under any circumstance. Um and so you 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 have those uh lining up and um then you have the Sanani Jew and the Najrani Jew saying that abortion is okay; it's a good solution to the to, to the problem. Uh, but the French Jew saying, you know, absolutely not. This is this is murder. This is one of the worst things you, you you can do. So, what's interesting is the cultural clashes are not binary; that they split in in these in these interesting kinds of ways. Uh, there's also a difference in approach that Halevi wants to solve. Uh, the problem with abstractions. He wants to persuade people to change their to change their ways, even threaten them a little in in, in that persuading. And Habshush has a much more practical approach. He's saying, let's relate to this family on its own t- terms. We're not going to change their 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 mindset. Um, they believe that honor killing is a part of what is what halakha demands for them, and he's not going to change that. But he's going to find a practical solution that works. And of course, you can't forget that there's. Um, there's self-interest. There, this is a story of a white knight in his shining armor coming in to save the damsel in distress. And Hapshush wants to for all the good reasons, but he also mentions that this woman is really beautiful and she would make a great second wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there's a lot of complexity to the to the to the story, too. Uh, just
1: you, you said it so beautifully. So I'm gonna go on to the next question. Okay. Um, Talking about languages, you had spoken before about how you got into Arabic and Judeo-Arabic. And this book, as you said, was started, it was written, I think you said, was written uh, at the beginning in Hebrew, and then it switched to Judeo-Arabic. And so can you talk a little bit just about the translating and referencing? There are a lot of biblical quotes here as well and Mm -hmm. biblical stories. Uh, Just a little bit about the methodology.
0: Yes. Um, So... um... Chapshush is commissioned to write this book by Edvard Glaser, and he begins by writing the book in in Hebrew. And it's this very ornate uh, Hebrew with biblical phrases and lots of in-jokes and biblical allusions and and so on and so forth. And he writes a a few chapters in this way. And then uh, Edvard Glaser uh, comes and says, no, 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 You you shouldn't do this. Write uh, in the Arabic that you speak. Then it'll be of use to researchers, because <laughs> they'll be able to study spoken Sanani Arabic. Um, and uh, and so Khabsush changes the language, and the whole tone changes. Uh, it goes from sounding a little hoity-toity to incredibly conversational, and. Um, uh, I've I've taught this text, and I had a Saudi student in one of my classes, and he told me that Khabshush's Arabic sounded exactly like his grandfather's Arabic. That that was uh, really? that was that kind of similarity. Yeah. Um, and uh, and there's there's a there's a different conversational tone. Uh, the other thing which I heard was from the some members of the Khabshush family, and they recognized this kind of dry humor as something that they still heard in uh, and, and told as something that they still heard in their in their relatives. So the challenge really was 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 conveying that trying to uh write in an English that um that was that reflected this this really good storytelling ability of 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 the writer. Uh in terms of the biblical allusions they're they're really fascinating. So I'll give a I'll give a I'll give you one example maybe. Mm-hmm. Um Habshush has a sense of humor. And uh Joseph Halevi's first name is Joseph, and there are lots of references to the biblical Joseph in this Hebrew portion. Um, so in Genesis, the biblical Joseph is sent out by Jacob to go and check on his brothers. And on the way, he meets this, this unnamed, unnamed man who says, uh wh- who asks him what he's looking for. And uh Joseph, the biblical Joseph, replies, "Et achai anochim M'vakesh hagida na li ro'im. I seek my brothers. Tell me where they're pasturing their 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 flocks. <laughs> and um, Habshush uses this sort of as a foreshadowing device in his in 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 his account. The biblical story involves this unnamed person, this unnamed guide that uh, Joseph is asking help in with, for, for with directions. And Hapshush himself is this unnamed, unacknowledged guide by Joseph Alevi. Alevi never mentions Hapshush by, by name. Um, also the encounter between Joseph and his brothers in the Bible doesn't go so well. Right. Uh, <laughs> right? And, uh, there's a lot of haughtiness on Joseph's side. There's, you know, the well-known activity on the brothers' side, and this foreshadows what happens with in Habshush's view with uh, Joseph Halevi and the Yemenis. That uh, here's the standoffish Frenchman in 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 in, in Yemen, and uh, he may have a lot of good qualities, and Habshush admires his learning, and and uh, he's he's blessed by God in that way, but. Uh, but still, socially, there's a missing piece, and and things go to pieces.
1: And you take it uh, for so, all the accolades that he got when he went back. And this was written 20 years later, and still, where is Habshusha's name anywhere?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and Hapshush is, play, is playing with that, right? He he uses yeah. this biblical, <laughs> biblical quote to to tell that to tell that part of the story. And he and he often and he often does that. Um, there's another wonderful passage where he's de- describing. Uh, the receiving hospitality from this Muslim woman and he's describing how uh, she manages her house and um, it's not clear whether he's saying this uh, just to report or even to in some way to degrade her I mean because the the po- poverty itself is just so is so degrading that he's describing, but he refers to her as an chayil, a woman of valor. The uh, which is the, a biblical passage, and a passage Jews still still sing as a song, mm-hmm. uh, talking about how a Jewish woman should manage her house, and um, at least I think uh, it can be read as as um, you know a, a profound appreciation for this woman that he sees, right? That he's willing to use this Jewish term for this Muslim woman, and um, and maybe it's ironic, maybe it's not, but but that's just another example of him throwing in these biblical references.
1: Um, So you mentioned the Habshush family. Was part of your research speaking to the Habshush family today?
0: So uh, not part of research. I I met them accidentally. Uh, So uh, they were incredibly warm and uh, and and uh, shared with me a bunch of a bunch of stories about about the family. uh, it's it's a story of 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 transplant to Israel and in some cases to 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 the United States. And they were very active in Israel in um, in helping other Yemeni Jews
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: establish themselves, establish themselves there. And I think that one of the things I really want to get back to are Yechiel chapshusha's uh, self-published books. Uh, he is born in Yemen. He goes to Israel. He is uh, terrified that this entire culture that he grew up with is going to be erased. When so
1: does he, he make it to Yemen? To Israel, sorry, or to Palestine? In the
0: in the, in the nineteen in the nineteen forties, he, he 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 goes and he's he's very young. I forget his exact his exact age, but what he wants to do is record uh, so it doesn't get lost. He even has a book on Yemeni Jewish jokes. That he has in Judeo Arabic and translates into Hebrew and explains in Hebrew and, uh, um, and uh, it's it's the way he he can give a legacy to 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 his children and to his and, and to the broader the broader community. So I feel that there's um, there's a lot there to 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 study. Um, and I I feel that he uh, that he writes in many ways with a with a similar kind of style and humor to. To his great uncle, Chaim Chabshush.
1: Wow, I'm definitely interested in reading them once you have them going. Are they in Hebrew or they're in Judeo-Arabic?
0: No, they're all in Hebrew. he, he, oh, he wrote them all in Hebrew because okay. at that point he's yeah, so you can read them. I agree. Uh but he's uh because at that point he's really he's realizing that uh, that Arabic is going to be lost, right? That the that Hebrew is gonna replace Arabic as as a language, but he still wants uh, people to have a sense of sense of their history.
1: Uh, so now let's get back to the Arabic and the Muslim patrons you talked about the tribal um the tr- the tribes in all the different regions yes. and going between the different tribes um and the concept of a Muslim patron I've heard of before I don't know if every, all of our listeners have but it's something that is known but I think it went even further when you described the Darbal uh of tribal yep. patrons paying the jizya of their Jews to the Ottoman Empire out of their own pockets. I just, uh, to me, that is above and beyond. Can you talk a little bit about the patrons and the tribal system?
0: Sure. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go back a step and talk about the three major uh, systems of law that govern that govern Jews. That would help. <laughs> in Yemen, Habshu's time. Uh, so the first is Islamic law, and that people tend to be more familiar with. There's the the Vimma system that uh, Jews get uh, toleration in exchange for a set of uh, accepting a set of uh, legal disabilities. Um, so most importantly, they have to pay a special they have to pay a special tax in exchange for this toleration, and. For the most part, Jewish communities did just fine in most parts of the, of the of the Muslim world under this system. But it is worth noting that this system was more harshly implemented in Yemen than in almost any other region of the of the Muslim world. So we have things like the orphan decree, where um, uh, orphan Jewish children there was a law that they had to be raised by 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 Muslims, so they were taken away from their families and 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 raised and raised as Muslims or the the uh the, the Dung edict or the scrapers edict or whatever people say where Jews were forced to uh to 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 remove excrement um uh so that you have you have this this uh much harsher implementation in Yemen than you see in in, in, in other areas um so that's the that's the one system the 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 the, the system of of the Vimma the, uh, the the Vimma that goes on there and that is what is implemented in places like Suna, now there's another system of law other than Islamic law that operates in a whole variety of areas, and that's tribal law. And um, uh, tribal law is distinct from 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 Islamic law. It uh, is essentially structured around a series of patron-client relations that you have um, you have these uh, you have tribesmen. And they are the ones who are players in this game of honor. And then you have non tribesmen and they're often known as uh, weak people. That meaning that not that they're physically weak, they can be quite strong, but they're, um, but they're, they're, they're not part of this uh, tribal game of, of honor. And this system works out well for the Jews because they're not the only weak people. Um, they are not the only minorities. I think Jews always do better when they're not the only minorities. Uh, for example, in Christian Europe in the medieval period, Jews are basically the only minorities, and things don't always work out for them particularly well. But here, with the tribal system, who are the weak people? They're the tradespeople. Uh, a blacksmith can be a can be a weak person. He's not a tribesman. He's under the protection of a tribesman. Uh, Sides descendants of uh, the Muslim prophet Muhammad are also weak people in this in this in this designation, and. Um, the tribesmen need these weak people. That's how they they can sustain economic development. That's how these sort of little towns can be, can be attached to these, to these tribes. And what do weak people owe the tribesmen? Uh, the tribesmen provide them with protection, but the weak people uh, provide them with services and sometimes gifts and so on and 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 so forth. Uh For the most part, it seems that Jews lived well under these these circumstances, and they weren't weren't second-class subjects in the way they were in Islamic law. Why is this? Because if you're a tribesman and you wanna show that you have honor, the more weak people under your protection, the greater your honor. And moreover, you don't want those weak people to be looking weak and decrepit and suffering, because that shows that you're not able to provide for them properly. You want them living well, you want them thriving. Um, And so um, Jews in these in these in these tribal tribal regions uh, are not subject to the kinds of dress codes that uh, they're subject to in other parts of Yemen under under Islamic law. They're supposed to be dressed well, they're supposed to look like that they're doing well. The other interesting thing is that these weak people are expected to participate in tribal battles. Now, according to Islamic law, Jews aren't allowed to carry weapons But in these regions, Jews, because they're participating in tribal battles, do carry weapons. And Hapshush is shocked when he finds these warrior Jews dressed indistinguishably from Muslim tribesmen uh, and carrying these weapons. Uh, So that's a cultural shock for him coming from the capital, which is which is governed by Islamic law. There's a third system of law, which is which is coming into place, and that's Ottoman law. Now, the Ottomans uh, capture Sun in 1872. Uh, Habshush is with Halevi in 1869 to 1870, but he writes his accounts in the 1890s. So one of the interesting parts of the of his travelogue is comparing what things were like before and after the Ottomans. Now, the Ottomans are at this phase of their rule where they're getting rid of a lot of these discriminatory regulations against uh, non-Muslims. They're getting rid of the jizya. And why are they doing this? Uh, To strengthen the empire, that they want people to feel Ottoman patriotism. Uh, And to do that, they eliminate these old distinctions between Muslims and non-Muslims, or at least they eliminate a lot of them. They try to implement that in, in, in Yemen. But Yemen is on the very periphery of the, of, of the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottomans never fully are able to, to conquer it. It's kind of like their Vietnam War. Uh, there's a, a Yemenite phrase that uh, Yemen is a graveyard for Turks, and, and that's kind of true. And Yemen, Jews get caught up in this fight between local Yemenis and Ottomans, that the Ottomans, uh, in your local Yemenis, uh, the Ottomans are seen as protecting the Jews, and uh, sometimes local Yemenis, to show that uh, the Ottomans don't have control, will, will will attack Jews, or will increase, or, or will implement regulations against, uh, legal regulations against Jews that the Ottomans have attempted to get rid of. So in the Ottoman period, despite the Ottomans trying to get rid of a lot of these laws, sometimes these laws get get implemented by local local authorities. So that's the... Those are the three systems of law. So, what happens in that in that passage that you're talking about, where Jews have to pay the jizya to the Ottoman to the Ottoman Empire? Uh, Ottoman rule is very disruptive on the local system. This fragile balance between Jews and non-Jews is disturbed. In some situations, you have uh, tribal tribal authorities saying, "Look, we're suffering under the Ottomans." Uh, They're curbing our traditional ways of living and the Jews are suffering, too. So we're going to suffer with them. So they pay the jizya for the Jews uh, who can't afford it to the Ottoman Empire. We also find other situations just a few pages earlier where things work out differently, where the tribes say uh, we're suffering and the Jews have money and we're going to take it from them. And they're able to avoid that in the end. but this new power is 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 a huge and uh, is a huge pressure on on Muslim. Uh, the intervention of the Ottomans is a huge pressure on Muslim Jewish relations.
1: In the memoirs or in the journeys, they talk about the Abyssinian Jews and Joseph Alevi going there. Um, yeah. I know there was some trade between Jews uh, in Ethiopia and in Yemen. Can you have you encountered that in other places as well? Can you talk a bit about that?
0: Uh, So Ethiopian Jews are new for European Jews in the 19th century. They find out about them because uh, there's a Christian missionary who goes to Ethiopia to convert them. Jews hear about this and they say we should save these Jews from being converted to Christianity. A rabbi who's particularly active in that is Azriel Hildesheimer, who is often known as one of the founders of modern modern orthodoxy. And uh, Halevi... Uh, volunteers himself, he says, I want to be the first European to meet these Jews and uh, we will develop a plan to protect them from these from these from these missionaries. So it's a new thing for uh, Ethiopian Jews to exist for European Jews, but for Yemeni Jews, it's not such a new thing. That uh, Ethiopia and Yemen, if you look at a map, are not that far away from one another. Uh, there's active trade between Yemen and Ethiopia. The coffee trade is the most famous, but there are also other kinds of trade. And uh, I'm not saying that every Yemeni Jew has heard of Ethiopian Jews, but certainly some have, and uh, definitely uh, people who, who are engaged in that trade. Um, then we have, uh, in 1839, the British take uh, Aden, the port of, of Aden. And uh, at this point, there are a lot of Yemeni Jews who get involved in this uh, Indo-British uh, uh, trade you know to india to other places and at least for some of them it takes them to yemen and a whole community of yemeni jews ends up developing in 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 parts of ethiopia mm-hmm. Um, there's even a synagogue by the end of the of the 19th century, and there are Jews from all over the world, but there are a lot of Yemeni Jews in that. It's effectively a Yemeni a Yemeni synagogue in, in, in Ethiopia. So when Hapshush is, is is writing in the 1890s, he's I can think we can assume that he's well aware of of Ethiopian Jews and what's going on. At least something of what's going going on in, in, in Ethiopia. I think the other point to to mention is that um, the story of Aliyah of at least some Yemeni Jews is through Ethiopia. And uh, there's a a wonderful uh, article by Batsion Iraqi Klorman, on these connections between uh, Yemeni Jews and and Ethiopia. And she's uh, part of the interview is based on, uh, part of her article is based on memoirs. And part of her memoir is based on these interviews that she's done with Yemeni Yemeni Jews who made their way to Israel via via Ethiopia, often staying decades in Ethiopia before before moving to, to Israel. Um, so that's, I think, the uh, the connection between Yemen, Yemen and Ethiopia. For Halevi, it's it's random. He goes to Ethiopia and then he's invited randomly to 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 Yemen. But there's a broader story between the two, those two places.
1: Yeah. And like I said, there's so much to unpack here, but mm-hmm. we'll have to save it for another time. I want to get a little personal here because you mm-hmm. dedicate your book to Hannah, Maya and Daniel with yes. the hope that a quote with the hope that they will be blessed with the curiosity, empathy, love of learning and enthusiasm of Chabad Chabshush. I have to say, I absolutely love that. I always try to get my kids excited and involved in it. Um, do you have family gatherings where you get to talk about your research and talk about these types of things?
0: So absolutely, and I'm glad I'm glad you asked that uh, that question. Um, when they were younger, I did it a little bit, and uh, by the time they were about eight, um, a, a lot a, a lot more. And uh, now my twin daughters are 13, and my son is uh, 11, even more so. And what my experience is, is that they can sense when I'm excited about something, and they get excited, they get excited too. And I'm going to go out on a limb here, but um, part of the reason why I share my research so much is a kind of a frustration with the way a lot of Jewish education is done. So uh, I'll point out PJ library that if you look at their, if you look at their books. Most of them are about a simple moral message, and they hammer it home. And uh, my kids never liked them, and they always found them boring. And I think that if you really want people to love a culture, you need to show them something which is broader than just a saccharine message or, or, or a picture of nostalgia. Uh, you need to show the drama. You need to show the pain. You need to show the struggles of, of real people. And I think that that's what Habshush did that Habshush wrote his book because he was worried that Joseph HaLevi would misrepresent Yemen. And what he could have done was uh, written a book which said, you know, the Yemeni Jews are such nice people and it's a beautiful culture and, and all of that. And he does convey what a beautiful culture it is. But he tries to portray the culture as a whole. He shows generous Yemeni Jews. He shows mean-spirited Yemeni Yemeni Jews. He talks about the struggles of the community. He describes good relations with Muslims. He describes bad relations with with Muslims, and that's the way you fully engage with 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 a culture, and that's the delight of 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 sharing khabshush with anyone. But I think that there's a message in him there in him even for even for thirteen-year-olds, um, so that's. That, that's the story behind the dedication.
1: I absolutely love that. I have to tell you, mm-hmm. and um, it's almost a promo. I'm going gonna to plug the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience because that's one of the things we try to do is to expand mm-hmm. and to show there's a depth and a breadth to the Jewish experience that is has done. Mm-hmm focused, as you said. So thank you for that. Um, and I want to thank you also for being with us today, Professor Berskin. Um, And I did really, truly appreciate the book and reading it and the translation. Um, and it really just the depth and breadth of the Jews of Yemen and the fact that they were not totally cut off from the rest of the world, I think it's an important point that you do. And Always on the New Books Network, we try to ask, what can we expect to see next? What are you working on now?
0: Uh, So my next book is very similar to this book in the sense that it's a translation and it's got an introduction and it's called Diary of a Black Jewish Messiah. And it's about this uh, Jew named David Ruvaney, who shows up in Venice in 1524 and says that he is the general and ambassador of a vast Jewish kingdom of 300,000 Jews that is located just next to Mecca, and uh, it's an incredibly unlikely story, but people uh, believe it. Why? Because they've all kinds of geographical truths have been upended. They've discovered a whole new continent. Mm-hmm. So, if a new continent can exist, maybe a Jewish kingdom in, in Arabia can can exist as well. And uh, Ruveni, uh Come, uh, Reveni comes to Europe and he tries to meet with all of the European rulers. He meets with the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, he meets with the Pope, he meets with the King of Portugal, he meets with the King of France, and uh, he offers uh, these, these kingdoms the support of his army, his Jewish army, against, uh, against the Muslims. Now, I think he was actually on the Muslim side because this is a time of immense Christian persecution of Jews. It's the time of the Inquisition. It's the time of the expulsion from Spain. Uh, but that's what that's what he says on the surface uh, to Christian rulers. Jews see this uh, dear to David Ruveni, and they describe him as a black Jew. He speaks Hebrew. He's uh, a warrior. He's powerful. And they think he's the Messiah, something that he that he denies. But they look to him as somebody who's going to save him from this very difficult period of of Jewish history. You know, we think of the transition of Sephardic Jews from Spain to the Ottoman Empire, you know, it's a successful transition, but those decades... Uh, between 1492 and maybe 1530 or so are very difficult decades for uh for Sephardic Jews and that's when Rouveni is is active so um so they look to him as 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 some kind of savior and this book is a story about his diplomatic uh, uh negotiations it's a story about the various kinds of Jews that 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 he meets um and uh it's a story about uh Jewish powerlessness and uh, the need for some kind of central Jewish leadership. Uh, So that's the book that uh, it's gonna come out with Stanford University Press in January.
1: So we definitely look forward to that one as well and hearing more about um, Chaim Habshush uh, at the exclusive authors series coming up in December, so we look forward to hearing more from you then. Uh, this book is, again, A Vision of Yemen, The Travels of a European Orientalist and His Native Guide, a translation of Chaim Habshush's um, travelogue published by Stanford University Press in 2018. For those listening who want some modern-day personal accounts about the Jewish Mosaic and the Greater Jewish Experience, also listen to the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience podcast, Reclaiming Identity, on Apple, Spotify, Google, and on our website, Institute of Jewish Experience. Thank you again so much, Professor Burskin, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon.
0: Thank you so much for having me.